Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and this week we are back with another edition of our Inside the Mind of an Acquire series. And this week we have a special treat. We are joined by Joe Cubier, who's the chief investment officer at Valsoft, one of the most prolific acquires of software companies in the last few years. In 2023 alone, Valsoft completed 25 acquisitions in 10 countries. In total, they've acquired 95 companies and paid the founder 100% of their proceeds in cash in all 95 deals. In this episode, we get inside Joe's head and find out how he thinks about the issues affecting all business owners, not just software company owners, including how to structure your role after your company is acquired, the downside of selling to private equity, dealing with the egos, and what to do when a acquirer tries to retrade, plus so much more. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode with Joe Cubier. Enjoy. Joe Cubier, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. As, as our guests and listeners have just heard, you have been on an acquisition rampage over the last three or four years. Um, an amazing story Valsoft is. Can you just describe what you do at Valsoft and the company itself? Yeah. Uh, thanks again for, for having me. Uh, Valsoft is a company that was started uh, eight years ago. Uh, and the premise of the business, while we, we didn't think that it would grow to what it is now, was to acquire vertical market software businesses all around the world through some investments, some research, a lot of research and some experience uh, in different you know uh, areas of, of entrepreneurship. We kind of lucked into and fell into um, what we call vertical market software businesses, which are software businesses that are very niche, very narrow in scope, uh, but extremely important in their customers' lives. Uh, they're usually built by entrepreneurs uh, that you know have scrapped together a product from their basement and eventually sold it to a friend and then two friends and then seven. And then they've built those kind of mini conglomerates in verticals that are too small for large companies to care about, but too important to the customers for them not to be incredibly resilient. And um, we basically uh, got into uh, the business because we we found that there's a lot of those businesses and very, very, very few of them have an exit strategy. Uh, and a lot How of them- How big a company are we talking here, Joe? Like size, revenue, what yeah. would they be? So, a vertical market software business could be as small as like $500,000 or, or even less than that. Uh, but the ones that we care about have revenues of somewhere between three and a hundred million uh, in revenue. And the reason we discriminate is not that, you know, the other ones aren't good is that like, if you're going to spend the time to do diligence, a company and acquire it and spend the time to get to know it and all that, you know, you want a base of revenue that's big enough to justify that kind of investment for, from us. So that's typically what we're doing. Speaking of the the money side, my understanding is Valsoft started when two Montreal-based entrepreneurs kind of cashed out and had some money and 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 built it. And you know, obviously, it, it took some different turns along the way. Viking Global came in as a minority owner investor. 
Describe who, who Viking Global is, and then I'd be curious to know, you've been there since 2015, how did Viking Global's investment change the culture, change the overall sort of ethos of the company? Um, it's a good question. So I'll start by talking about Sam and Steph, the, the two founders of the business, um, entrepreneurs since the age of like 13. Uh, got to know each other in school. When they graduated, they started a few businesses. Um, and ultimately, they uh, sold the business and went their separate way. And then uh, a couple of weeks into the life of uh, of, a, of an early uh, retiree, they were like, this is horrible. We need to get back together. <laughs> they went <laughs> back together, put the money together. And that the investment company that started Valsoft is their investment company. And now we have more partners, including myself and so on and so forth. But the DNA of the firm, uh, the DNA of Valsoft, starts and ends with Sam and Steph. You know, Did you get any sense of how much of their net worth they put into it? 100%. 100% yeah. of their net worth they put into it? Yeah. They're all in? All in. The, we true. don't know of any other way. 100% of my net worth is into it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, so the DNA starts from there, right? And, and the DNA is the DNA of entrepreneurship, first and foremost, of value investing, second. Um, like there, there's been an immense amount of work that's been done to understand why vertical market software businesses are a good investment, right? It's, it's not by coincidence that that's what we do. Um, and then, you know, we are Montreal-based and, and pretty you know, scrappy and like we'll roll up our sleeves. And, and earlier this morning, I was talking to a business at six in the morning in France because it's an investment that we made last year that's not doing as well as I'd want to. And, you know, I'm responsible for that investment. So while I probably have a million things to do, it's important for me to make sure that that investment pans out. So I'll, I'll get my hands dirty and everyone here will get their hands dirty. So that is the DNA of the firm. And the Viking Global Investment, which happened uh, a little bit over two years ago, um, changed nothing. Um, when we were looking for that investment, I, I led those efforts internally, and on purpose we did it uh, kind of as an internal process. Our number one criteria was to find as close to our DNA as possible, and we rejected uh, many other investors, we we, for, we 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 said no to better valuations because of the risk of changing the DNA. Um, and I'm not going to speak for Viking; they, they could speak their, their own. But like, um, they've been incredible partners to us, uh, mostly because there is complete alignment in what we're doing, and they've been incredibly supportive. So I'm very happy to say that it changed nothing. Else. Fantastic. So let's get back to the actual deal that you look at. And, and as I have you do this, uh, you know, we have people in all different industries, right? We've got, we do have some software listeners. We've got people who run car dealerships and veterinary clinics and graphic design studios and everything out under the sun. So most acquirers will have some set of criteria they look for. And so I'm asking Joe to share his 
criteria so that you can get a sense of the level of detail one would go to in in putting together some criteria. But know that in your industry, obviously, it would be different than Joe's. But Joe, for you at Valsop, what, what is your criteria? You mentioned three to 100 million in revenue, industry vertical software. What else do you look for? What other attributes are, are important? Um, the most important uh, criteria that we look for is the mission criticality of the software to its customers. Now, mission criticality means that the software is very important for the customer's day-to-day operation. And the way that a software can be important to your day-to-day operation is because it's a very good product and because your customer service is good, right? So the majority of our time spent on due diligence is understanding how important the product is and how important the team is to the customer, right? How would you do that, Joe? How would you evaluate like objectively the mission criticality of a piece of software? The most important way, the, 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 there's basically just two ways to do it. There's a financial way or a mathematical way to do it, which is to calculate churn. So if 20% of your customers leave you every year in the software world, that means it's probably not that mission critical because one out of five first people take the time and spend the money to leave you. If you lose 3% of your customers per year, it's probably extremely mission critical because you know something can happen that you lose a customer, but if it's only 3%, it means that it's very mission critical. The second and less mathematical way to do it, which is probably as important, if not more important, is to um, speak to the customers and understand what their interaction with the company is, right? And you have to ask questions that can get you to um, to that answer, which is like, okay, so at the end of the day, what's your relationship with that company? You know, like, you may like them or hurt or hurt them or hate them, but like, why? If it's because you hate the person that helps you at the company, you can kind of overcome that, you replace that person. But if you hate everything about the product or if you hate everything about the way customer service is thought about or, or whatnot, then that's a lot harder to, to fix. And when you think about churn, uh, you know, I further break it down in terms of kind of avoidable and unavoidable churn. Yeah. So particularly when, you're, when you've got an SMB software, there's some unavoidable churn, right? 100%. Got, sure. Customers die. They M&A, they, customers die, yeah, like you said. Yeah, they, they close up shop, they retire, et cetera. How do you think, is is 20% gross churn annually, uh, 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 all churn rolled up, including both uh, you know, avoidable and unavoidable? Or is that 20% gross churn avoidable that is? You're, you're asking a question that I hate to answer but it's the right question to ask um, because there's no magical number because as you said, there's some stuff that's unavoidable. There are some industries that just naturally churn more than others. Um, there's, you know, if you have 10,000 customers and you churn 10% of them, that's a thousand people that decided not to. But if you have eight or whatever, 20 customers and you churn two of them, that's still 10%, but it's only two, right? So, so it's really, really hard to put a, a, a number on, right? But what I will say is um, 
The natural churn of a vertical market software business is somewhere around 5% on average. That's like uh, closing up shop, M&A, uh, you're going to have some unsatisfied customers that you really shouldn't have as customers and so on and so forth. It's super, super hard for me to be interested in a business that has over 10%. But if, for example, the churn was uh, 14, 12, 10, 8, I could see a trend, then I'll look at it, right? So, so the 10% rule is a, is, a, is a good gauge of it, but not like I'm not going to do, no, I'm not going to do anything. Like if we've bought, a, we bought a business last year that basically lost 1% of its customers for five years, and last year churned 25% of its customers because it was one big customer that was moving, you know, they grew, they grew out of it. Like they were just too big for the software solution. I would have wanted them to churn. They were taking up too much of my resources and so on and so forth. We It was explained. It was understood. We looked at it. We ended up acquiring it. Right? But if you're looking for kind of rule of thumb, five is natural, 10, I start to like get work in vertical markets. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. So what else? So churn is a big one. Mission criticality. Uh, revenue three to 100, certain industry verticals. Is there anything else that would be the sort of minimum filter that you would look for before digging in? Um, yeah, there's a couple other things. Um, in software, there's not many types of revenue and you could easily categorize them between recurring and non-recurring. Uh, recurring being something that you charge either monthly, yearly, and, and it's for the right to use the software. The non-recurring ones can be licenses, professional services, development, uh, could be a bunch of different things. A business that doesn't have at least 60% of its revenue in recurring is a very difficult business for us to earn, to own, because the characteristics are that every day you wake up, you have to go and sell. And whatever you sell, you need extremely competent people to execute on it or else you're going to have a pissed, pissed off customer, right? So we don't mind non-recurring revenue and we've acquired businesses that have less than that. But in an ideal world, the most amount of your revenue that's recurring, the easier it is for us to acquire, the easier, the easier it is for us to reinvest in the product and so on and so forth. You have to worry less about where your revenue comes from. Um, the quality of your team is exceptionally important. Um, it, it's not a disqualifier in the sense that like we won't buy a business if the quality of your team isn't exceptional, but it can affect valuation because it could mean that we have a lot more work to do um, to, to get it, to keep it as it is or to, to, to get it to better state. So those would be the ones that come to mind. To how do you think about valuation? Because, you know, I, I'm hearing industry vertical software, three to a hundred million in revenue, um, you know, solid management team, churn less than 10% annually. Like that's a pretty attractive business that's going to attract a lot of acquirers. How, how do you think about valuation? Um, it is a very attractive business. It's going to attract a lot of people. But our philosophy being value investors is that like we want the best businesses, right? We want to pay a fair price for the best businesses. And those businesses, the way we think about them is a multiple of revenue, 
not a multiple of EBITDA or any any sort of profits because software businesses in general, you have the option to be profitable or not. John may think that it's a very good idea to reinvest in order to grow and run the business not profitably for three years, and you may be right, and that may be the right thing to do. And for the same business, I may think that, you know, let me just milk it for, for its cash flow and, and so on and so forth. So because profitability is, is an option in software that like is pretty dependent on the life cycle and, and the owner and so on and so forth, we tend to look at it more as a multiple of revenue um, and more specifically as a multiple of recurring revenue. And it's very tough for me to answer this question because um, depending on the quality of the business, the amount of work that needs to be done and the amount of investments that we need to make in the business once we've acquired it, the state at which the product is, um, the number of customers it has, the jurisdiction that it's in, it could be a multiple of, you know, a fraction of, of the multiple of the of the revenue, or it could be a multiple of two to three times the revenue. You know, it, it really depends. And for some people, that may represent 50 times the revenue, you know. Ultimately, what we care about is what multiple of revenue and earnings are we paying two, three, four, five years down the line once we've optimized the business. Okay, so I, I want to get to the optimization piece in a moment uh, because I think that's that's important for our listeners to understand. But before you do, let's just talk about how a typical deal would be structured. So let's say you find a vertical market software that I'm just going to make these numbers up. They're doing 5 million in revenue, churns less than 10%. You pay, well, should we say two times for the sake of this hypothetical? Yeah. Okay. So, so the total, the total kind of value you place on the business is $10 million. Um, what percentage of the business are you acquiring? And I know every deal is obviously going to be a little different based on what's going on, but if you could kind of give me like a general scaffolding for a typical deal, yep. if it's a $10 million company, what percentage are you buying? What percentage are you asking the owners to roll is kind of my first question. So we've done 95 deals and we've acquired a hundred percent of the business 95 times. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and by the way, that's not necessarily by design. Like we we happily have someone you know roll or 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 whatnot. We've had had situations where they wanted to roll um, in the beginning, but then after that they were like, you know what, maybe I'll just cash everything and, and why don't we come up with a compensation structure that looks like I'm rolling, but at least there's no you know a shareholder agreement and, and fiscal this and fiscal that and whatnot. Like we prefer a clean deal. And if someone wants upside in rolling equity, we'll find a way to structure. We, we've done it before. At the end of the day, it's an economical question, but we, we want to avoid the complexities of shareholder agreements and all, and all those things. So, so you buy 100% of the company outright. How do you ensure a successful transition between the owners or the owner and you guys? Look, um, first of all, they haven't all been successful. It's, it's, it's not fair to think that it will always be you know a transaction like buying someone's business comes with risk there's just no there's no way to avoid it right um the best way to minimize that risk is to be extremely transparent with 
what you expect in terms of transition, what you would like in terms of transition, and hopefully have the same level of transparency from the seller, right? So if you buy a business from someone who is selling you the business because they want to retire as soon as possible, and you structure the transition plan as a three-year transition plan and make that person extremely mission critical to that transition plan, it's never going to work. You know, like that's not what they're selling the business for, right? So you got to understand why they're selling you the business and then structure the transition plan in accordance to that, right? And if the reason they're selling you the business doesn't match with the transition plan that's required, then it's probably a deal that everyone should walk away from. Like these things need to be aligned for it to be successful. So again, I'm sure every deal is is different, but what would a typical transition plan look like? Like, would it be an yeah. earn out or a year or what, what, what's, what, how do you structure it? You know, there's about uh, a third of the sellers that we encounter that sell us the business with the intention to do a super, super quick transition. So one of the reasons for something as a business is we would like to minimize the transition period. That typically looks like a three-month transition period and the ability for us to consult with them when needed for another three months. Like that, that's enough time for us to uh, gain knowledge, find a proper transition, which we will look for before buying the business, and then kind of, uh, yeah, ensure proper transition, right? Then uh, the other two-thirds are either in it for the long term, so they would like to stop being entrepreneurs and just be part of a larger business, uh, which this transition is basically, you know, it's, it's smoother in a way, but it's also rougher because you're going from controlling everything to having someone to report to. Um, or someone that wants is unsure of how long the transition is, but would like it to be like a multi-year thing, right? Um, so those ones, it's about defining the role in the new business and them settling into that role. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you go from like, I'm the owner of this business, you have to worry about a million things. And if you go to the CEO of one of 95 businesses, you have to worry about less things uh, in terms of number, but what you have to worry about becomes 10 times more important, right? So like if we've identified this business as one that can double, well, the mandate is going to be to sell and you're going to spend more time selling and less time managing payroll and HR and a bunch of stuff that we can do for you anyway, right? So it's a very long answer to say that it really depends, um, but it's either three to six months with a with a transition plan. And if it's longer, it's more about the role that you're going to have within our business. Okay. And to go back to valuation, a typical deal would be you'd pay 100% of the company. So our hypothetical business with $5 million in recurring revenue, you pay two times for it. It's $10 million. You write them a check for $10 million. And then um, is, is any sort of performance bonus earnout in, as part of the transition? That's extra, right? That's in addition to or is that part of the 10? Um, it, it could be either one. Okay. Right, so uh, there are some sellers that will take less money, but you know, fully guaranteed. Uh, most of it on close, and some of it deferred. Some sellers are like, "Look, I, I kind of love my business. I think it has a lot of potential. Is there a way for me to participate in the upside that we're going to create together?" I'll tell you that 
I, I did the, the research and for the people that like bet on the earnout, they've done better than the people that have taken the guaranteed money, but not a hundred percent of the time. Sometimes it doesn't work out, right? But on average, if you're willing to share the risk, you're going to share on the upside and we're going to probably do better together. But it's 95 deals, 95 different structure. The earnout could be X percentage. The earnout could be over an X period of time. We're extremely flexible and able to adapt to, you know, whatever the situation requires to get a deal done that makes sense for both. Got it. And how much debt do you put on the business? Zero. So this is interesting because most the private equity playbook that that I'm most familiar with is kind of buy sixty percent, get the entrepreneur to roll forty yep. percent, put a couple turns of EBITDA and debt on the business, lever it up, maximize ROI. What, what's the thinking behind not following the traditional playbook? So in order for that playbook to work, and it works, by the way, it's a very defensible business model. But in order for it to work, um, there's three ingredients that are required. Number one, you require an exit. Whereas we don't, we, we, we keep uh, all of the businesses and our time horizon is infinity, right? So a lot of the returns from private equity firms come from number one, the exit, right? The second thing that it requires is uh, a business that either grows earnings or grows top line, ideally both. Um, and that's not necessarily the case for us, meaning that like it's okay for a business to be what it is. If it if it's acquired 100% of the customers it could possibly acquire, um, and it's making as much money as it could, we'll keep it. It's it's great. <laughs> it, it requires zero percent of our time, so it's it's just making what doing what it's supposed to do. And the third ingredient is it, it's remarkably hard to do this on small businesses. You know, like if you're going to do all that effort and put uh, come up with that financial, you know, package and go see the banks and, and put security and pay interest and all those things, you want to do it on like 30, 40, 100, 500 billion dollars, right? But what we buy is three, four, five, six, right? So to do it that many times um, would, would take up way too much time and erode our returns down to almost zero. Right, that's that's not our game. That's not what we do. We we want a return on equity. We're buying those businesses with equity. We don't want to worry about making interest payments. We don't want to worry about covenants. We don't want to worry about the business not having a good quarter. The, the businesses that we're buying it buying, we're buying them with a 10, 20, 40, 100 year horizon. We don't care about monthly and quarterly things. And when you start putting debt on individual businesses, inherently you need to stop to start caring. There's no other way. So a really a fundamentally different model, which is so glad I'm so glad that we had this conversation because I, I I I have fallen into the trap. I've heard it so many times that I've fallen into the trap that the kind of private equity playbook is so similar. But what I'm hearing you this is a different business and a different business model, uh, especially with the whole period uh, of infinity. But you do mention earlier operational Improvements. So you mentioned the company in France, the 6 a.m. phone call. It's not going as well as you'd hoped, and you guys are all digging in to figure out why. So what are the typical 
when you get underneath the covers of these businesses, you've bought them. Uh, the honeymoon is over and you're, you're seeing the, the reality of what you bought. What are the typical operational improvements that are the lowest hanging fruit for you guys? Um, they all start with the fact that we're investors first and foremost and value investors. So you basically look at the business as revenues and expenses, right? And you ask yourself, am I optimizing my revenues? Am I optimizing my expenses? When you look at the revenue line, revenue lines, um, the, the typical question you have to ask yourself is, do I have the right customers paying me? And am I charging them the right amount for the value that I'm delivering? Right. And the answer here could be that you're charging the right amount too much or too little. And that's how you optimize it. Right. Depending on what the answer is here. So when you buy a business, what proportion of time would you raise prices? Uh, it's a high percentage, but never, ever without delivering way more in terms of value. So we'll never go see a customer and be like, uh, this is us before acquisition, after it's 10% more. If we're going to charge 10% more, 20% more, 5% more, depending on what it is, it's going to be in exchange for something that has a tremendous amount of value for the customer, more than what we're increasing prices. This could be a different way to support them. This could be a different product. This could be uh, in additional services. This could be in additional modules. I, I don't know how it could be. It really depends case by case, by case but it's never just arbitrary. But there, there is that playbook for sure because a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, what I'm piecing together here is like less than 10% gross churn annually. I mean, these are sticky, sticky, sticky customers, right? The founder stitches an idea together from his or her basement, friends, friends of friends, becomes like the hero in the local tiny little industry vertical. All of his buddies are customers and he becomes hesitant to raise rates on them because they're like, oh no, but we've been doing business with Jane since 1986. No, I couldn't raise the price on Bob. You know, I went to his kid's wedding. I mean, like there's that kind of mentality among these very small companies where they're part of the fabric of an industry and and it makes it very difficult to get fair price for what they're offering. Again, when you see churn of two, three percent a year, it sounds like there's a lot more meat there to go after in terms of pricing. So I'm not surprised that a lot of times there's a, a price increase. Yeah, but if you raise prices on Bob just because you can, there's a pretty good chance that Bob's going to be upset. But if you raise prices on Bob because uh, you are you just acquired the business and you have an offshore development center that can modernize the software much quicker, right? Then Bob doesn't see it as a price increase, nor is it a price increase. It's, a, it's almost like an upsell, right? Which is like, we're not changing who we are, but the product is better and you should pay me more. Right, so. Got it. So, so low-hanging fruit, the first, the first number you look at is revenue. Oftentimes, it's like, let's build some more value yeah. here into the, into the product so we could charge more revenue per customer. Yeah. What else? What's the second most common sort of area of low-hanging fruit? And then the, the second part of the PNL is the expenses. 
And this is where you have to look at the expenses and understand which ones are expenses and which ones are investments, right? So we'll never look at it as uh, you have eight developers, we need to get to six because that's what some random, you know, math formula got us to. Uh, we will look at it as what do the eight developers do, right? And does it create value or not? Should it be 10 at the expense of higher revenues or a different department? Um, or should it be five? Because three of them are developing a product that just doesn't make sense, right? And this is where your example about Bob and, and the industry and I went to the wedding and so on and so forth, I think is more applicable there than it is on the pricing. Because what will end up happening in those businesses, because they're so embedded in the industry and they're so, you know, I went to Bob's wedding and all those things. Um, sometimes Bob will ask for a feature, you know, and that feature is going to take the developer's time for like six months and probably two of them. And uh, none of the other customers need that feature because Bob's business is like so unique in that industry and so on and so forth. And then you'll be stuck with those developers for that one feature that like, if you just said no to Bob, his reaction would be, oh, okay, I understand, right? But you don't want to say no to Bob. So you get those two developers and then kind of best case scenario, you develop it and Bob's happy. The worst case scenario, you develop it and Bob's still not really happy, but you still have those developers. And then you find them another feature and then you're like, you forgot that originally you didn't have those two developers. That's more common than the, the other. I think it's a great example. <laughs> so good. Uh, the, the kind of feature creep, the little favors that get done along the way. And, 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 and then you got, of course, you just got to support that feature. You know, you can't deprecate it. So you've got to keep like, it's, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great example for sure. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the personalities involved because the entrepreneurs that, that I've met and, and had an opportunity to interview, I mean, it's probably a over overly simplistic to say that they're often kind of, I mean, they're strong willed. Maybe some would say egotistical, like they know their business, you know, like they're, they've been doing this for 56 years and like, no one's going to tell them what to do. That's the kind of attitude that we get. Now, two thirds of your transitions are people who want to stay on at least some period of time. How do you, what have you learned about stick handling the personalities? Like how how do you sort of yeah how, what have you learned over the years? You must have learned a ton. Look, it, fundamentally speaking, that is our business, right? The personalities. Yeah, because um, we're an investment company uh, that happens to invest in vertical market software businesses, and we acquire those businesses. We, we don't start them, right? And a person sells to a person. So in any transaction, in any deal, in any M&A deal, I have to make that person's life better, right? So the first thing that I got to do is understand what makes John's life better. Why is he or she looking into selling their business, right? And if I don't understand that, there's no way for me to offer them something that's going to make them sell their business. It's so rare that someone will sell their business to the highest bidder in our industry. Like, it may be that it's the highest bidder, but like you want the highest bidder that gives you what you want, 
It could be deal structure. It could be the vision for the business. It could be that you uh, own a, a business that's similar to mine, so I have confidence that you'll treat my customers the same way. It could be a reference. It could be anything. But like people sell to people, and if you don't understand that, you'll never get a deal. Okay, that's a good framework and a good sort of structure. But let's get into the more details. Like, can you tell me of a story where you had to go to an owner and tell them to do things differently, raise the price on this customer, stop doing this crazy feature creep stuff or whatever the, yeah. the thing, like how did you handle it to get, I mean, maybe use the guy in France as an example. Like how do you get someone like that who thinks they know their business, have been doing it for many years and convince them that you might know something about their business that they don't? Well, the first and most important thing is that it can't be a surprise. Right? Like the first time they hear about this can't be uh, five months into the transaction, right? Like it, it's got to be an open discussion about it. Um, and then, you know, like any discussion with any human being, you, you have to like explain the reasons why you think that's the right thing to do. You also have to be humble enough to not think of it as the as a as a sure proof way of of doing it like it's it's what you think is best it may or may not work but i now own the business so it's my risk to take you know so so like it can be that like i'm so sure that this is the right way to do it that like it's it's probably the right way but i don't know you know and then um if you're honest about it if you have data that supports it, if you have experience that supports it, and that still doesn't get it done, then there's no way to do it. Like, it has to be one of those discussions. It's like, okay, look, I understand you don't want to contribute to this. It may be that we have to part ways, or it may be that, you know, you let me handle this while you handle something else. So um, forcing someone to do something they don't want to do is the best best recipe for disaster so like it, it has to be a and if it leads to parting ways it leads to parting ways if it leads to a temporary realignment of responsibilities no problem that's the luxury that we have at valsoft in having you know a team and people that can do different things you know we could supplement your skill set with with other stuff i want to um i want to give you a couple of stories that i've heard through the pod. So these are entrepreneurs I've interviewed who've sold to investment companies, private equity groups, in some cases, strategics, and and things have gone sideways. And I'd, I'd love to know what your, you know, if, if you and I were having a beer and given all your experience in M&A, both buy side and sell side, and I said, look, I want to avoid this happening to me. I, I'd love to know, given your lens on the market, what advice you would give an entrepreneur to avoid some of these disasters, I'll call them. But uh, does that sound good? I've got- Yeah, of course, go ahead. Okay, cool. So the first one uh, isn't relevant for your type of business, but I know you've certainly studied other competitors in the private equity space that do this. And that is that they buy a business and apply too much debt to the business and that the business then 
is unable to paid back the loan sure. and the business goes into receivership as a result or, or, you know, gets, gets taken over by the bank. I just did an interview. It'll go live. In fact, the week prior to our interview going live uh, with a guy named Mark Swig and, and Mark sold his company to a private equity group. Uh, in fact, the number was 10 million, got 8 million in cash roll to ultimately the two, uh, uh, was gone, was lost because the mezzanine financer that financed the deal foreclosed on the business and took all the equity. How do entrepreneurs avoid that? Other than selling to Valsoft, because you guys don't use debt, yeah. what else would you tell me if we were just having a drink at a bar? Like, what do I do to make sure that that doesn't happen to me? I mean, look, I, I'm very, very, very sure that not a lot of entrepreneurs, or at least there's some number of entrepreneurs, that don't even know the financing structure that goes into their deal. So the number mm -hmm. one thing is ask the question and be aware of it, right? That's- How much debt are you gonna yeah, use to they, buy that business? Yeah, exactly. How much debt, what what covenants are there? Those are those are all things that like you're entitled to know. Like you're- Describe you know, a covenant for folks who don't know that word. What do you mean like, by covenant? When, when, when someone lends you money on a either quarterly basis or semi-annual basis or yearly basis, they're going to check some ratio. Uh, the day ratio could be how much they lent you versus how much revenue or how much you, they lent you versus how much profit you made during that period. And if you're above that ratio, um, if it's a negative covenant, then the lender has a right to ask you to fix that problem and ultimately the right to take your business, right? So if your ratio is four times debt to profit, um, and your profit, you know, just goes down that year and you're at five times, then they're not going to take your business immediately, but they're going to start asking questions and they could take the business. But if the ratio is, is four times and when you sold the business to them, it's one times, then the profit would have to like go down dramatically for it to be a problem. So it would be less of a problem, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. So to be aware of those things. First of all, every buyer will will give you the information. None of them want to hide it or anything like that, but I, I think very few people ask. Such a good point because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they hear, you know, X, XYZ private equity company is buying my business. They don't always think that XYZ private equity company is in turn levering up their business. They might think, oh, well, they're going to borrow some money, but it's against xyz's balance sheet and in fact it's it's not it's against your company's 100%. balance sheet in most cases and therefore you've got to understand does your company have the capacity to pay meet the covenants that are going to be put in place and pay that yeah. and, and and that oftentimes starts entrepreneurs down this road of well, why am i selling to a private equity group if i if i'm going to have to live by this covenant anyways i don't need the intermediary i can just go borrow money from the bank and expand my business that way yeah yeah, you could. You may not have the resources or the capacities to, but ultimately, if you do, you could, yeah. And the second scenario is a guy named Lloyd Lobo. Lloyd, I interviewed maybe six or eight weeks ago. Folks can, can find the episode if they want. He sold a private equity. Great transaction for him personally. Made a lot of money, and it was a success. However, it broke down with his acquirer. The relationship fundamentally just dissolved, you know, went to become very problematic. And, and ultimately the private equity company said, look, I think, I think it's time you, you probably move on. 
And, and that triggered, as you might imagine, like an incredibly difficult, depressive period for Lloyd. He went through clinical depression and he, and, and, you know, like lots of, lots of very deep emotional scarring as a result of that, because this was his baby. This was his company. It was like, it was everything to him. He had given birth to it. And he ended up just feeling, uh, just personally really, uh, devastated by being let go. Again, if I'm looking at a, a private equity group that's making an offer, and the offer is twofold. One, there's an offer to buy my business, but there's also an employment offer to retain me as CEO of the business. What do I need to do to ensure I don't get fired? So my wife will find me uh, very crude and very like uh, cold-hearted when I say the statement, but it's because I've experienced that many, many times and I'm able to emotionally detach myself, right? The reality is when a private equity firm buys your business or any acquirer buys your business, they're wiring you the funds in exchange for your business and the right to do whatever they want in the business, right? And that's a right that they have that they hope to never exercise. But ultimately, when I'm buying someone's business, it becomes my right to do what I want. And we can negotiate what kind of right I have and, and whatnot. The best way to ensure that you don't get fired in, in, in the scenario that you, uh, that you, uh, you outlined is to pick the right partner. There's very, very little you can do if you pick the wrong partner uh, at first, right? So if you have a feeling during the transaction that that partner is going to fire you, you're probably right, they will, right? But if you decide to take less money from someone that you feel is the right partner, uh, you're less likely to get fired. There's really no other way to, to fix this uh, it's the right of the acquirer in most transactions to do that. You can negotiate in there a humongous severance. Uh, a private equity firm will only see it as a cost that may or may not be worth it. It may make their life a little bit more difficult. But if you have the right partner, and again, you're not always going to be right. But if you chose them for the right reasons and they chose you for the right reasons, which is really hard to assess when you're dating someone, right? Because you're getting married with them. So this is basically the dating period. Um, then it's not likely to happen. Third scenario uh, comes from Ryan Moran. Ryan, uh, we interviewed probably six months ago. Folks can find it if they're interested. He sold, I th I'm going by memory, 55% of his equity rolled 50, 45. And he was in your first bucket. He was like, I am out of here. I'm I, like, I'm done. I'm burnt out. I want out of this business. Uh, bring in a CEO. And so he became the 45% shareholder of this company. Private equity group owned 55%. And they, and they sure enough let Ryan go off into the sunset. And yet he rolled, I, I think, close to eight figures worth of, of equity in, into this deal. And ultimately, they brought in a CEO uh, of their choosing, the private equity company's choosing. You know the rest of the story. 
the CEO wasn't the right person, started making the wrong decisions, and ultimately the business went to zero. Ryan lost the 45% that he rolled in that transaction. And I've seen other examples where the founder negotiates put options, where they can basically have the right to sell their remaining shares um, at a predetermined price. What ad- I mean, what advice would you have for an owner who's heard the Ryan Moran story and thinks, oh my gosh, I love the upside of the of ruling 45%, but I'm really concerned of it going to zero? So if your ultimate goal is to go into the sunset and like use my first example, yeah, I would say that you have to minimize the amount of roll as much as possible. Like 45% is way too much if you're looking to exit the business, right? Um, I would say you try to minimize that as, as much as possible. You, you keep it to 5, 10, 15, maybe 20%, but you, you're not going to be, you don't want to be in the business. And the odds that you find a CEO to be as good as better or better than you as a founder, you know, it's, it's very low or else you would have found that person, right? It's, it's really low. You know, it's, it's true for huge businesses. It's true for small businesses and whatnot. So I would say that's an advice that I would give. Um, as for the put option, I mean, it's, it's a very nice mechanism. It's, it's, it achieves what you want, but you introduce another two risks there that you have to be aware of. First of all, if you put the rest of your stake to someone who can't buy it, it's worthless. We have mm-hmm. counterparty risk there. And then if you're, if you're exercising that option, you're either exercising it because the business is going to zero and you're not going to have a motivated person. You're going to have the right valuation for it. And then if the, if the stake that you're trying to sell is worth so much more than what you're trying to sell for, then you're not going to exercise it. Right. So like it's already so hard to determine the value of a business today. It's almost impossible to know what it's going to be worth two years from now, three years from now. It depends on so many things that like I find that setting those things in advance is really hard and could lead to like friction and, and whatnot. I mean, I'm sure it works out in some scenarios, but I could see how sometimes it doesn't. I would say if that's what you're aiming for, try to get as much upfront as possible and roll as little as possible. Yeah, five, ten, fifteen percent sort of those sort yeah, of numbers. Something where you're like, look, I, I want it to work out, it didn't work out, not the end of it. Yeah, great, great, great advice. Uh Fourth scenario, Sherry Deutschman goes back four or five years ago, wonderful business, started Ledger, Letter to Logic, which was acquired by a private equity group. But before she sold, she had created this profit sharing program for everybody in her company. The profit sharing program was for hourly workers right up to the kind of senior executives. And so she took a portion of the company's profits and she shared it. And in the early days, I mean, this was like, they were getting checks for like $12 and like $36. I mean, like inconsequential amounts of money. But by the time she built the company up, I think she was at seven or 8 million when she sold, these were material checks in particular for her hourly workers, right? People who are making $15, $20 an hour were getting checks of like four or $500. So a meaningful amount of money. Private equity company buys the business and, and you know, the rest of the story, you know, they, they do the spreadsheet and, and look down line, you know, 64 on the spreadsheet and they see 
profit sharing plan. And they say, well, we can eliminate net that, you know, we're, we're a big wall street private equity. We don't, we don't need a profit sharing program. Um, and they didn't realize that it was this incredibly poor, important part of the culture, right? Like every small business has this delicate alchemy that doesn't really make a lot of sense to outsiders. But, but, but if you're in the culture and in the milieu, you kind of understand that it's all very delicate. And it, but it works, but it, but it can be broken easily. If you have a culture like that, where people are friends and there's open management in place, and what coaching would you give me about approaching the sale of my company? So first of all, I'll say that in our experience, whenever there's a profit uh, plan, profit sharing plan in place, it usually leads to incredibly positive outcomes. Like whenever we've bought a business that has that, it has talented people, it retains its talented people, and it's a great business. Like it's it's phenomenal. We have a profit sharing plan within our businesses, not individually every business, but like in general at Valso. And we implement it in the individual businesses that deserve it and that have a track record and, and that are like, you develop such a good culture. The, the advice I would give on that is that like, you you make it mandatory to keep that in the transaction. So if, if someone wants to come to me and I love the business and they said that like for a minimum of five years, you need to maintain that profit sharing plan. If it makes sense financially, then I'm going to keep it, right? But at least um, I won't have the surprise of removing it six months after or a year after or whatnot. Like you disclose it and you make it mandatory and also, and, and you let the buyer deal with it. Like contractually deal with it, not deal with it as they see fit after. Because of course so the reflex can, is going to be to remove it. So you can paper that into oh, the transaction. For sure. Awesome. Okay. So you got, so folks listening, if you've got a profit sharing plan, you think it's a big part of your culture, you should be able to negotiate that as part of any transaction. Final scenario is retrading. Retrading is, of course, the dirty little secret of the world of M&A. You agree to a deal uh, uh, in principle with a founder. Founder, you know, buys the boat and the ski house. And in their mind, they've sort of committed to the transaction. And then the most unscrupulous of buyers retrade, not because they found something material in due diligence, but because they know they can. So yeah. we're having a beer and I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a day 58 of diligence. And I just, I tell you that they're trying to retrade. We had a deal and now they're coming back and asking for a deal 15, 20% less. What advice do you give me? Uh, ask why they're retrading, right? And, you know, they, they will answer it. And if the answer is, because we can, or, or some version of that. Like, if there's no substance behind it, if it's not like, here's how I underwrote it, here's what I found, and why I can't pay this price anymore. Like, um, I thought it was 5% churn, it's actually 10% churn, this is why I can't pay this price. That's a valid reason, right? But if it's, an, it's not a valid reason, walk away. Because, you know, yeah, you, you may like the price 20% lower. And, 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 and So either walk away or try to sell as much of it as possible at that price. Because like 
if someone's retrading because they can, then they're going to retrade because they can a year later on your employment agreement. And they're going to do this, you know, on anything because they can. So, like, um, look, we have retraded. You know, we have, but never without a reason. And we may disagree on the reason. That's that's perfectly okay. You know, like, that's what due diligence is for. But we've never retraded because we can. We've retraded because we found something and we're able to present what we found and the reason why it links to a lower price. You can disagree with it and we can walk away. You can disagree with it and still do a deal or you can agree with it, right? But again, it comes down to like, what are the reasons for the retrade? And I would ask Yeah, no, for sure. Super helpful. In the event that you have to retrade and the owner digs in there, he doesn't said, no, no, we had a deal. You said X, I'm not taking X minus 20%. What proportion of the time would, would you say, okay, yeah, you're right. I'll, we'll pay X as agreed. Like, is this ever a negotiating tactic for you knowing that in the back pocket, you'll pay X, you're just trying to get it for X minus 10. No. Or if they say, I'm not taking, like we agreed to X, if they dig in their heels, what proportion of the time would you walk away? 100% of the time. If I'm retrading, it's because the deal as constructed originally just doesn't make sense for me. And, and you're willing to back away yeah. at that point. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a negotiating ploy. No, it's unbelievable. I can't say that's for everyone. And I can't say that in my life, I haven't met people who don't do this. Like, it, for sure it happens, right? But for Valsoft, we're not going to retrade to end up in the same place. Like, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Or else we're just going to close the deal because it makes sense. It makes super sense. Thank you again for taking the time. If folks want to reach out to you, Joe, and, and say hi on social media or contact you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, email is probably the best. LinkedIn, uh, one of those two. Um, they're both on the website. Um, and Joe's got a unique uh, uh, surname that's a bit tricky for Anglophones to to spell. So I'm going to put it in the show notes at builttosell.com so you can go find uh, Joe Cubier's email address uh, at builttosell.com. Joe, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having us. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Joe. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit Joe's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. Not only will you be able to find everything referenced, but also definitions for some of the more technical terms that were used in today's podcast. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.